Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Mitesh, the CTO and CDO at The Zebra. And they discuss the benefits and practicality of having a full-blown data function at an organization. How Mitesh has utilized Andela to build internationally distributed engineering teams, and why it's important to create a culture where nobody gets in trouble for an honest mistake. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. There he is. Hey, man. Good to see you again. Good to see you. You're the man of the hour, my friend. How do you feel? I uh, feel great. I'm excited to uh, uh, get another chance at doing this. And, uh, and it's fun. We've been uh, so heads down for a while. Sometimes it's fun to you know step back and, and chat about some of the things I'm thinking about. Yeah. So what, what's what been going on since we hung out in Austin? We've uh, we've been going through a pretty uh, you know kind of large scale company transition. We you know kind of realigned on some of our objectives and have been you know kind of transitioning the teams in terms of how we work um, and going through a lot of that stuff, which we're right in the heart of. Really, just kind of focused at saying like you know we went into you know the pandemic at 160 ish people with certain ways of working, and we grew to almost 400 during that time. And when we got, you know, we had tremendous growth, but now operating and running and executing at a 400 person company versus 160 with a hybrid workforce with, you know, more people that have joined during the pandemic than we had before. Some of the things that worked to get us to where we were aren't necessarily the, the ways, you know, that'll, that'll work getting us forward. And so, so it's really around creating like the, the alignment that was a lot easier when you're walking around the office right? Helping to reinforce that, put in structures so that, um, you know, that, that support the things we need to do today versus what we needed to do before, a lot of things like that. So it's good stuff, good problems to have, all, all about problems of scale and growth. That's awesome, man. 160 to 400. What's like, like, what's, what's the biggest thing that stood out to you from the 160 to 400? You know, um, can I give two things? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because there, there's two. Um, so I'll say that the, the first thing that stuck out to me is that, you know, there was an article I found recently that talked about this, and I can't recall where it was, is that when you join a team, right, regardless of what leadership is saying, you learn the most about how to work and how the company works from the people around you. And so when you're 160 people and adding a, you know, a handful of people, there's a lot more people around you that have been to, at the company for a while that know how it works, that, you know, can help with things like we're a very open, very transparent company, right? You can reach out to me. You can walk by my office, reach out to the CEO. We have a Slack channel where you can just ask questions openly, and that's what we want. But that's not the norm in a lot of places, right? That, that, there's a lot of places where it's like, oh, you know, you know, I, I can't go bother the CTO or the CEO, right? Like I, I can't take their time and, and like they're, they're on this other level kind of thing. And so people bring their previous experiences, right? In, and when you have a lot of others that have been here, it's like, no, you should absolutely, you know, reinforcing, you should go talk to them, you should bring it up. You, you kind of build that, that culture and to keep it going. When you get to where we've added so many people more than what we had, you know, 
and throughout pandemic where people have been remote and not in the same place, who do you work with the most? More likely than not, you're working with people who haven't been here that long, who didn't come up with that, right? So you're you're not getting that positive reinforcement or that that direction around preserving the ways we work, right? Which um, was so critical. And so that's one of the biggest things is that we've seen far more of people coming in who just operate by nature differently and who don't, you know, necessarily innately understand how they should work with leadership, how, you know, how we like to work. And that's a learning for us too, which means we need to do more, uh, you know, overt, explicit, you know, education on that or communication around how we work. So that's probably one of the biggest ones. The, um, the second thing I'll say is that there's just a different dynamic in people's, I guess, to go to, if you've read five dysfunctions of a team, uh, people's first team, right? Whereas at 160 people, you're still where like the entire engineering team is kind of like in it together. That's their first team. That's, that's who they operate with. But when you grow much larger, those people's first teams and who they operate with is the very specific team that's focused on the area of the code base or the business problem we're trying to solve, right? And so it gets smaller. And even within a department, there's less kind of uh, interaction. And, and so people are, it, it, that kind of closes in. And so the, the natural, like you have to do more to build that communication, that teamwork, that collaboration that, you know, you might expect at a smaller team would just happen naturally, but it doesn't happen naturally there because just by necessities, uh, you know, of the fact that people can't know or talk to everyone. Do you have someone uh, in communications now that you work with? Uh, we do. I mean, we have uh, some people in internal comms uh, here. We've also, one of the biggest things we did is, is bring in, kind of build an ops department or an ops team, which has been, uh, you know, key in terms of helping wrangle all of our processes, our communications, you know, gather all of the information that was kind of spread out, kind of, you know, consolidate, standardize on things. And so that's a big work in progress throughout all of this too. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I, l- I like that. It's, it's like, uh, it's kind of creative, right? You don't hear about it like a ton. Yeah. You know, I, I, I guess you hear a lot about, you know, problems with scale or needs to change. Um, and, you know, on the technology side, it's all about, okay, well, you know, how do you, how do you run technology at scale? How do you support traffic? How do you release it, deploy it, you know, build it, maintain it at scale. And on the people side, it's more around like management and growth and, what I hadn't seen a lot of is the change in the relationship between teams and the change in the relationship between leaders and the teams as you grow. And so that's something you recently gotten experience with. Yeah. You know, I think at every time we've kind of hit a new stage of, of growth, there's, you know, you get that one little thing where when, you know, when it's 10 people in a room and I'm working with the developer directly, and then all of a sudden it goes to we're, we're bigger and now there's a layer of management between, right? That there's this sense of loss for the developer and for me, right? Like I need to now figure out as a leader how to stay on top of what's happening without, you know, micromanaging, without staring over someone's shoulder, you know, pegging for status reports. But they also now have the sense of loss where they were working directly with me and now we're getting information kind of filtered down. 
or you know that there's not that direct relationships and so it happens at every stage and i think this was our reckoning of it happening at this stage too your company's growing you've got a lot of people you've got new people coming in you've got existing people it sounds like in based off of knowing you that you guys have pretty motivated driven culture over there what stands out to you about like the next generation of of leaders like how what's what's things that they're doing that stand out to you where you're like I want to give that person more opportunity. How can I stand out to Mitash? Um, that's a, a great uh, a great question, and I think the the biggest thing for me is retaining that um, that sense of ownership or drive that um, you know maybe was kind of more prevalent or easier when we were smaller, but in a larger organization, which is you know one of the things that. I kind of look at as a leader is, you know, I, I guess, and maybe stereotypically, the bigger we get, the more, the easier it is to fall into patterns and ruts and get stale. And like, we can't, like, I, I don't want to be that organ. We won't get to where we need to be as a company if that happens. Um, and so what really kind of strikes me is people who maintain that spirit of, I see a problem, I'm going to go fix it. Or I'm going to figure out how to fix it, and that drive and that ownership um, from everywhere—not not just from leaders, but from you know individual contributors all the way through the leaders—I think is what really, really sticks out because we need those people. That's what you know. That's what we built the company on, and that's what is going to get us forward. Is that that mindset that I'm not okay with things that are broken just because, but I want to go try and fix them, right? And and so those are the people that we you know, like to, uh, to elevate and, and, you know, and bring up the people that, that aren't scared of that. So you just bake that into your culture. So at each level leaders are, are looking for that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the things people have asked me, you know, what, who ends up doing well at the zebra. And I was like, you know, I talk about people who take that kind of ownership. We're, we're not a micromanaging culture. Um, we don't want to be a micromanaging culture. We we want people who crave the responsibility and the accountability and and want to go, you know, grow and learn from it. You know, I I came from a, you know, I worked at Trilogy uh, Software back in the day, which was really about, you know, we high growth and high learning, but we got thrown to the fire, right? And it was scary at times, but we were given protection, right? We were given that air cover to, to make mistakes and learn from them. And that's how we were able to move quickly, how we were able to grow quickly and learn quickly. And I, I truly believe that, you know, I've told my teams that no one is ever going to get in trouble for an honest mistake, right? That's how we learn. It's how we move fast. What we need to do from them is not make the same mistake. We need to learn and grow, right? And not be negligent or lazy, but make honest mistakes, right? That That's how we go fast. That's how we we move forward as opposed to kind of, you know, treading lightly and, and being scared to go and take some risks. That's pretty cool, man. I like it. And I like to see you grow and the company grow. I think we should give a little background about what the, the zebra is, what they do. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, thanks. Uh, we're, you know, thanks for having me on the, uh, the show as well. The zebra, we are a, you know, a, a digital insurance uh, comparison site. Um, we started initially in auto insurance and, you know, have expanded into home renters and kind of working through other verticals, 
but our job is really to be an advisor for consumers to help uh, help consumers understand insurance as a whole, what they need, what you know, what goes into pricing it, and then help match those consumers with the right carrier and policy for that. Um, and so that is, in a nutshell, what we're we're trying to do: uh, bring a little bit of you know transparency, a little bit of kind of uh, matchmaking, a little bit of education and trust to this industry that you know it. it is something where the whole advent of the insurance agent was because it's a complicated and complex product and it's not something tangible or easy to understand. Yes. Yeah. And I remember you know, I an, I had previously a license in Florida uh, to own and operate an insurance agency. And okay. this is like way back in the day. And mm-hmm. people were hacking together these things called like multi raters, which would just screen scrape mm-hmm. and like go input and physically recreate because they were all apps on desktops. You know how you would get quotes yeah. and the agents were doing yeah. that to try to get multiple quotes quickly. Yeah. Matt, you, you, you described exactly the situation we picked up with in 2013 when we was like, well, we started with, okay, how are we going to get rates? And it was that situation. You know, you had multi raters that were doing this that were desktop apps. You know, insurance carriers who hadn't invested in building APIs, the ones that did have APIs were based on standards, which were more like suggestions. They were so old school APIs, not JSON, not modern, you know, REST APIs or, or anything else. Right. And, and then on top of that, you know, there was this hesitancy to price transparency where, you know, carriers didn't want to be commoditized. They didn't want to be what they called spreadsheeted. Um, you know, and had seen it happen like in the UK, in other parts of Europe, in South America. And, you know, you have carriers who have invested a lot of time and money in building their brands and their differentiation that, you know, did saw price transparency as completely opposite to that. Right. So that's what you described is actually right where, what the state of the tech and industry was when we started. So is that you you guys don't actually write insurance yourself, correct? You correct. Compa- it's more like there's like a policy genius thing. I don't think they're a competitor. They do it for like life insurance, right? Uh, the policy genius is actually very similar. Like it, they they are uh you know, they're they're a friend of me in the sense that they're um they're in life insurance, uh, but they do a very similar thing to what we do. We just, you know, operate in different verticals. But it, it is. They're also a licensed agent or you know broker, just like us. We're a licensed agent and broker. We we both have call centers. Um, we just fo- you know have started and focused on different lines of insurance. So is it like an app? Can I download a Zebra app? Or is no, it a website? No and um, if it is a website, um, it's you know desktop and mobile. And you know we we thought about the app and you know we looked at it and said you know this is something that you know you're while we want people to to shop when it's the right job like that there's not a whole lot of like i'm going to check this every day right like you know how many people you, you shop for insurance when something happens right when something changes in your life when your policy renews when prices go up um but that's a you know a periodic thing it's not a consistent thing that you're going to do daily weekly you, you do it half every six months every 12 months right something like that and so you know, and looking at it, we're like, at some point, perhaps an app makes sense. Not right now. Yeah, that's funny because like, you know, I, the large part of my career was just building apps, like app apps. And uh, for, for the longest time when I did this, you know, leadership company, and it was leadership software, 
people are asking me, oh, wait, what, are you going to do an app? Are you going to do an app? And I'm like, no, because it's not functional for the end user. Like you, the last thing you want right. to do is make a group of executives go download an app to take leadership training. I was like, it should just come to them, okay. like cracking cracking the lobster you know, for the customer. It, it should just arrive right to them in the most easy way with auth links and everything. Um, but yeah, I like it. And then I was also thinking... I was like, well, you could probably like store the insurance cards in there or something, but then that would, that would somewhat blur the line between like who you are and what you're doing, right? Well, I mean, that is, I mean, when we talk about like where we want to go as a company, right? Our, our whole goal is to to be an advisor for these consumers. And if you think about, you know, if you walked into uh, Joe's, you know, insurance shop on the street, they know about you. They know what drives you, what you know, what your family is like, what your needs are, but they also know what policies you have. And so ultimately what we want to do is bring that online to where there is this notion of like a, a, you know, digital wallet or where you can have all your insurance cards and your policies in one spot and see them. And that's when I think a mobile app makes sense, right? Where I can pull it up. And, you know, when we get to the point where, you know, obviously we have to do a good job of educating people that we're not the insurer, right? What we're doing is helping bring it all together. But that's where I think there's value is like one touch, here are all my policies, right? And here's how I do, you know, if I need to make changes or learn something about it, maybe that's not directly through us. Maybe it's contacting the carrier. Maybe it is calling us, right? But all that stuff's right at your fingertips. I was like, that in my mind is is like, is where we're, you know, we can have a ton of value. But like, I'm just personally curious because I know exactly what you were talking about with the soap stuff and everybody was so disjointed. And it's, it's almost as if they intentionally like defunded their own API teams so that people wouldn't do this. Yep. Where is it at today? Is it accessible or how do you guys interface with these companies? It, yeah, it, it's far more accessible now. And it's because there was enough traction and enough push for price transparency, enough, you know, Kind of motion in the in the industry to where carriers finally realize we have to do this or we're going to lose out on market share right and that's where it's you know it started shifting and so carriers invested in some of the apis at least for part of the experience right which is in general for auto and for a lot of these there's you know there's one api call for what's you know called a you know an estimated quote or you know a rate estimate then you get a second one for a bindable quote or policy and then the third call is for payment and binding the policy, right? And so like, that's the generalization, but that's kind of what it is. And in general, companies had invested in that first one, the estimate, and sometimes the first and second one, but not as much in the, the binding and, and documents and policy, but that's, that's slowly starting to shift. And so, um, you know, we're seeing more and more of that stuff happen, more and more technology companies coming in to help be the kind of plumbing and the middlemen there. Um, and so the technology hurdles are less than they were, you know, almost nine years ago, but what still remains uh, kind of the, the biggest, you know, hurdle to someone coming in are the relationships with the carriers, um, which is, you know, you can integrate the technology all you want, but if you don't have the relationship with the carriers, you haven't proven the value, you haven't proven it, then you can't do anything with the APIs, right? Because you still have to be appointed. You still have to have, you know, budget and the relationships and 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 that proven track record of, of you know, kind of matching high quality, high you know, uh, consumers with those policies, them retaining, et cetera. And so that's probably still the, the biggest barrier to entry for someone trying to do this is is building that set of relationships. Yeah, it's tough and. 
Uh, I remember going around doing that in real estate. There was like 930 different MLSs and you had to go around to all of them to connect yep. them. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you went from 160 to 400 was most of that uh, customer success or customer service or engineering. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd say that there was a big chunk that was engineering data product, um, you know, and then we definitely added to our, our, like our sales team and, and agency. Um, and then, um, you know, added some to the marketing team and other parts, you know, we built up the ops org, as I mentioned. So, you know, there was some spread out throughout the company, but a, a big chunk was engineering and data. That's exciting, man. I, I want to, do you, was your podcast related to the zebra engineering team or is it just something else that you were doing? Uh, oh, the Tesh on tap. Tesh on tap. Yeah. 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 No. So it was, uh, it was actually related. It was a few different things. It was related to engineering, but, uh, part of it was, you know, during the pandemic, we're like, okay, you know, what can we do that's interesting? And that, you know, I, I have a network of a lot of leaders around, you know, around town, but around the U S that I've worked with or even beyond the U S it's like, can we just have some interesting conversations about topics that are relevant right now? Um, and it was, you know, it was kind of to tie it to things that we were doing, uh, you know, as engineering at the time, but, you know, right around last summer, it was a lot about diversity in hiring, um, and the challenges we were facing hiring, but also diversity in general. Um, you know, we talked about things like compensation, which were important with about remote working, about hiring practices, um, you know, talked about <coughs> data and how, you know, modern kind of data stacks and where that's moving. You know, I talked about uh, cannabis tech actually with a, a buddy of mine who was an early, uh, you know, kind of early foray into to cannabis tech and what it was like to build in an industry that, you know, in some ways could have taken advantage of a lot of technology out there, but because it was related to cannabis, you have technology providers that didn't want to work with them, right? And oh, so yeah. it, it was just kind of like this, like, Hey, you know, what's a, what are some good, interesting conversations we can have, uh, and do during this time when like, we're all kind of sitting at home. Oh yeah. That's, I remember like early on in the, in the show, like in the first like 50 episodes or so I had someone on, I think his name was Roger. Um, and he did it was Roger. Roger's my buddy. Roger oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. he did the, yeah, we were talking yeah. about that cause he did the payments. He, it was, it was, it was a POS yeah. system, right? Yeah, and he was, technologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude. So, uh, so Roger and I went to college together, um, and we were uh, we were a year apart. We were good friends. Oh, dude, that's crazy. You know, what's even weirder is like, I type notes while we talk, so I don't forget things. And I was typing a note. I was like, as you were talking, I was like, oh, that's right. You know, with the Tesh on tap, like, like, you know, me Tesh is like a really good job with personal branding. Is that like his PR? Or, you know, what is that? Because every time I meet people that are awesome, they also know you. And so it's like, (laughs) yeah, well, I I really appreciate that. And, you know, it's funny because we could go, uh, you know, tongue in cheek and my wife tells me I'll talk to anyone. Right. But to some extent, it's true because I genuinely enjoy people. Right. Like this is it's not facetious. It's not a facade. Like I, I do like I minored in psychology. You know, I there's parts of anthropology that are fascinating to me. I just genuinely enjoy people, um, and and I'm curious and interested in people and their stories and what they they do. And so I do meet a lot of people and I talk to them, but you know, for me, it's not a chore, right? Like it, for me, I 
I don't look at, you know, networking or this as like something I have to do. I just, it's just part of naturally what I do because I like it. Um, and so, you know, I've built up the con, you know, connections with people throughout my, you know, career and life and, and try to keep some of it up just because I'm curious and interested in what they're doing that, you know, I feel like I can learn a lot from them, uh, share what I have. And so, so yeah, so like I, I you know, it, it is kind of random how like I just know a lot of people, but, uh, but it's, you know, it's kind of gone well that way for me, I guess. Yeah. It's like you are just a good person. You go around, you talk to a lot of people, build relationships, and then opportunities emerge versus like, let's say you sit down and you put an hour in your calendar a week to intentionally do this, right? Did I get right. that right? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, I I, I never did that. Um, but thankfully, I, I don't think I, you know, I think different people need different approaches, right? Like based on what comes naturally that I never felt the need to do that. Because, you know, to your point, I just kind of was myself and took what came opportunistically. And thankfully that, you know, that helped me. Yeah, dude, I want to talk about Andela. Can we talk about Andela? Let's talk about Andela. So you were the first time that I heard. I, I want to, I wonder if we can even dig up that old episode. <laughs> but oh, yeah. when, I, when I, when I first talked to you a few years ago, you introduced me to Andela and like, I went and looked looked them up. And then from there, uh, you know, I heard more people using it and more people using it. And then I went and talked with them and like went through their whole onboarding process and everything like that, um, to hire some engineers. And I've just heard like really awesome things. What, what is your relationship like with Andela? Yeah. So, you know, we started with Andela back in 2016. So now, you know, five and a half years ago when they were pretty early on, um, and we were still, you know, early and needed to to grow our team pretty quickly. And one of the things that we hit was a sweet spot of good people, uh, you know, on the Andela side, and then good people like in in Nigeria and at the time in Kenya too well, on our team, who were just looking for you know a great opportunity. Um, and it was almost kind of this perfect mix of of timing and talent and everything. You know, I, I kind of likened it to what you know India was like ba- back in the late '90s, early 2000s, before a lot of competition came in. Is that there was a ton of great talent available. There wasn't a lot of like competition yet, and you know, it was this this perfect timing. And we got some phenomenal people. We still have, uh, I believe, 14 uh, team members, uh, you know, working with us, and some of whom have been with us this whole time. Um, and there, you know, there was a lot that they just brought a natural passion to it, right. Where, you know, it, in the industry, what we were seeing was there was a little bit, you know, I guess that hope not if anyone, but there was a little bit of entitlement. There was a little bit of like, you know, there was certainly this feeling of, uh, if I'm an engineer, I have my choice of jobs. I can demand all this and that. Um, whereas you looked at the, you know, these folks where it's like, I have an opportunity to do something bigger, to learn, to, to not only learn and grow myself, but learn and then take it back and invest in my local community, right? And so the, the passion and the, the uh, motivation and this desire was like different. It, it was different than what it was here. And it was infectious, right? It, it, it actually rose the, like grew the entire team. And so we had a phenomenal experience in terms of bringing in um, you know, this talent, we, you know, we 
integrated them right into our teams. Um, as part of our, our teams, we, you know, adjusted schedules as we could. We, you know, would fly, fly over there once a year, uh, fly the team out once a year. Um, you know, we're investing in, you know, video technology, you know, kind of remote technologies from way back and found, you know, found some great talent actually. That's exciting, man. I was, yeah, when they were telling me when I went through the process, they were saying, oh yeah, like they integrate with your team and your culture and like you'll bring them to the the States or you'll go over there. And I just thought it was a really interesting model. I'm not sure how much changed. Like I know they've done some change to their model. Are you still keeping up with that? We, I mean, I've kept up with it some, I've gotten a little further away, but they, they have changed a lot, right? Like, uh, you know, a number of things that have led to it, which is, you know, more uh, competition, more, you know, scale in terms of needing to, to f- bring in more developers to serve more companies. So they've expanded countries and, and geographies, um, you know, the, the natures of the pandemic. They had, you know, originally kind of centers where they, you know, got big offices or lunches, provided a lot of support and coaching, but it was all about bringing people in to a certain place where, you know, during the pandemic that couldn't happen. And so now they went, to my knowledge, completely distributed, right? Um, and so invested in the technology to support and, you know, helping people with their, their laptops and internet, all that stuff. But there's no longer this kind of, you know, bring everyone into a certain place. And so, you know, prior to the pandemic, we had this notion of almost having two offices, right? Which was we had our Austin office and we had our Lagos, Nigeria office. And even in the the office in Lagos, there was kind of like a bullpen area where our entire team there sat together. So it really did feel like two offices, not like Austin and a bunch of people, you know. And so that's shifted some, which has also, I think, made it different for new team members joining on, right? Like the the ones that experience that retain a lot of that collaboration, cohesiveness kind of innately versus the ones that, you know, people that are that are coming on after that and so i think a lot of that has changed uh in terms of you know if you if we were to start with andela today versus back then i think the experience would be would be different right i I still firmly believe that what's kept the 14 you know people uh, why we've had such success is that it really does come down to people right and and their you know their original mission of you know kind of uh brilliance or talent is distributed and opportunity isn't, I completely agree with, which is that to me, it doesn't, it's not about Nigeria, Africa, you know, China, India, Pakistan, Europe, South America. It's not about like, is it this company or that company? It really is about the people, right? And there are great people everywhere. Uh, and it's just a matter of, of, you know, of that opportunity about connecting them. And, and then, you know, you can do, it, it really just boils all down to the people. I love it. Yeah, you're right. You can find great people pretty much anywhere. That's what one of the interesting things when I started to travel internationally was how similar every, all like humans are. There's definitely like some little things like, you know, we got some different food. There's some, you know, different ways that we go about our day, but 80 plus percent of it is like, we're the same. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's funny because you go to other cultures or you watch, you know, I watch, you know, a lot of travel shows or food shows and you're like, you see people in other cultures and you're like, you know what? Everyone has their own like 
I, I know someone like that, but over here, right? And like, I know it, it, there's just commonisms where you're like, we are all people, we are all humans, and you know, and have the same basic needs, desires, drives, and just have different tradition, you know, traditions and customs and food and backgrounds. Yeah. And work ethics too. I got to be honest with you. Different, different cultures have different work ethics. I, I completely agree. Um, and you know, I think a lot of it just comes down to that. That's your culture, but also what, what you, you faced in terms of growing up and like what challenges you faced, what obstacles you had to overcome. I think in my mind drives a lot of your work ethic too. Oh, for sure. I watched this whole documentary on like Japan being so advanced and being such workaholics to the point where they have a word in their language for when you die working at your desk. <laughs> I, I've heard of this. I can't remember what yeah. it's called, but I, I, I read something about that. Yeah, I always butcher it or forget it. But yeah, when I when I read that, I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Why? And it was apparently because like after the like Hiroshima, I think is what it was. Mm -hmm. um, they work so fervently to rebuild that. And mm -hmm. then that never stopped. Like that energy and that spirit didn't just stop after they had rebuilt back from the destruction. It just kept going and it launched them. I mean, if, if you think about it, like we hear a lot about, you know, you hear a lot about Japan and their technology, but like, if you look at them on a map, like they're fairly small for how much we hear about them. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, that's a great example of the, you know, the reputation they've built and the, you know, the positive reputation they've built and what's come out of the the hard work there. Yeah. Dude, that's exciting. Have you been to Japan? I have not. It's still on my list. Um, the, I've made it to Hong Kong. I've been to India tremendous, you know, a ton of times, but, uh, but I, I still want to go to, uh, you know, a lot of Southeast Asia and East Asia there. I know. I'm hoping like, I, no, I haven't. No. One of my yeah. friends is, um, he's, he's from Russia and he, for a while he did like videography around the world. Like he would just go to these different destinations with, with companies to film. And he was telling me, he's like, I was like, of all the places you've been, he's been like, you know, 50 plus countries. He's like, where's the one place I have to see? And he was like, Japan. And I was like, why? And he, he said, the technology there is so advanced and so common. It's just mind boggling. I was like, oh, that's cool. I've heard great things about it. Um, you know, I, it's funny. We've been watching this show on uh, the, on Netflix, slight digression, but it's called Somebody Feed Phil, okay. which is by Phil Rosenthal, who was the, uh, the guy who created uh, Everyone Loves Raymond. Oh, okay. Um, and so, you know, it's ostensibly, uh, you know, a food show where he goes around to different places and, and eats different food, you know, but some in fancy restaurants, some with chefs, some in dives, but it's also a travel and culture show which it, it is phenomenal and, it, and it's endearing and it's cute and it's funny and it's like educational and it's a, a great show we watch with the kids. But, um, but I've learned so much about different places, you know, in Asia and Europe and everything from watching this. And it just reminds me of, you know, what you brought up of like, there's so many surprising things that you're like, wow, I never knew that. Wow. That, that's awesome. Right. Like, I can't believe they do that. You know, that it's like, makes me want to go visit all these places. Yeah, we're always looking for good content to watch with the kids. Ours are younger, they're like age four and two. How old are yours? Uh, mine is almost 14 and 11 and a half. So, okay, so you got to a little you, bit older. Yeah, yeah you got to keep them, keep them engaged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and they love to travel. So, um, you know, and so they're, they're now like, well, we got to go here. I want to go try this place. I want to go to that. Or like, keep it a list of all the places that at some point we're going to have to go. 
Yeah. Tell them make a list. They'll keep it, keep it cheaper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man. So I do have a, a question for you about this. I saw yeah. it and I was like, I don't know if we should have him on the show. <laughs> um, but it Hi. said your, your role is CTO slash CDO. What's with that? It is. So, um, so CDO, in this case, chief data officer, not digital. Um, and so if we rewind way back, um, one of the areas of technology that has been a thread throughout my entire you know, career has been data. I actually started dabbling and I wrote a backprop neural network in like 1992 or 93, um, you know, because I was fascinated with, you know, AI at the time and, you know, and, and uh, the brain and how it worked. Um, and then throughout my early career, I started working on databases, you know, getting deep into like query optimization for SQL Server, for Oracle, for DB2, um, Postgres when it first came out. And started working with ETL pipelines um, and talent and, and uh, you know, cubes way back before the term big data really was around. And so a lot of kind of the underpinnings of data, you know, engineering data, architecture, you know, warehousing, a lot of this stuff was really just kind of part of what I did and part of one of my areas of expertise. And so, you know, coming into the Zebra, I knew that data was going to be critical. Right, we're going to have access to competitive data. We're going to be consumer scale. It was going to be a big part of who we were, uh, both for how we make decisions, but also how we, you know, how we serve consumers better and carriers better. And so, I just kind of ran a lot of our data strategy in terms of us. We built our own, uh, you know, event pipeline, our our warehouse, our BI tools, and it was all part of engineering. What happened, you know, as we grew is that you know, that was part of engineering and then data science became part of engineering, but uh, our, you know, analysts were completely distributed. They were hired by the teams. We didn't have any governance or data stewardship. We didn't have any kind of cohesive leadership and kind of strategy or vision around it. And, you know, early last year, we realized in order to truly, you know, realize the potential of the data and get it, we, we needed to kind of centralize it and it needed to be from the leadership level all the way down. And so in looking at it, um, you know, in terms of who had the most experience, who, you know, I, I clearly have loved data. We said that this is very heavily and closely tied to technology, but it's not the same as engineering. And so we created a, you know, a sister org out of that, um, which is focused on data and has all those roles, data engineering, analytics, engineering, analysts, um, has data science, it has data stewards and governance. And really focused on on our entire data solution, uh, and working with the, the rest of the company too. And so that's you know really when I kind of took on both roles of uh, chief technology officer and chief data officer. Do you get two paychecks? <laughs> I, I wish. <laughs> we <laughs> It'd should be fantastic. We should talk to somebody about <laughs> no, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna take a note here. I'm gonna go you know back to our CTO. I mean our CEO. I was like, hey, you know what? I think maybe maybe it's time for multiple paychecks here. Yeah, say just tell him I said so. No, okay. <laughs> he'll be like, I don't care. <laughs> um, yeah. so, <laughs> so I'm curious though. Like, first of all, I didn't know that about you, so that was that's awesome. Um, but I'm curious about how that plays out, like functionally day to day. So I'm just going to ask a couple weird questions, maybe. And so you've got this data team; they're in charge of data. Like, how 
how did they get to do their job? But over here in engineering, you know, we're adding a new feature and I need to add a new column right into the database. How, how do they work together or separate responsibilities? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And so I, I guess it comes down to um, there, the separation is not on the like database la- layer for runtime, right? So the the product engineering teams will still, they maintain their own data and their databases and runtime stuff. But the translation or the, the difference really comes down into schemas and events, right? And so the, the layer is really around, we want to track, you know, much like you might do with Google Analytics or with a segment or whatever, like events around what happened, what a user did, you know, what, uh, what we learned about a user, what transactions, cost information. And we have, you know, we built a, a support for schemas and schema validation. And so, you know, they really kind of collaborate on what these schemas are, release them. And then it's up to the product engineering teams to, to fire those events that then get go into our, you know, data pipelines, get pulled in. And then the data team takes over in terms of aggregating it, modeling it to make it available uh, for data science, for analytics, for business intelligence, and then in our BI tools as well, right? And so um, that that kind of event pipeline and, and the data there is really that, that the, the separation or the line or the interface there. And so it's it's less of the, you know, oh, I own the database versus this, but more around our data warehouse and, and events and, and that stuff that the separation happens. Yeah, that makes sense. I found Segment a few years ago. And when I did, I was like, ooh, this is really, really interesting. Yeah, we we looked at it and then we were like, uh, you know, they do a lot of great things. Um, and at the time we were also like, I don't think we can afford them. And, <laughs> and this is important for us. So, uh, so let's go, uh, you know, let's go build what we need. Oh yeah, they were the first, like my experience was, they were how I learned about that type of, model because now there's hundreds of companies that do it right but right. i had never seen it before and when i first saw it with segment i was like this is so neat and you're right it, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't cheap <laughs> yeah yeah well and you know there, there's so much that we can do off of it in the future too that's not just uh analytics and you know where we're moving to is you can do a whole lot of real-time decisioning you can build models to support you know, runtime, data science, like, you know, personalization and things like that, where through that event pipeline, we can understand, is this the first time someone's come to the site? Have they been there before? Did they get stuck somewhere? Can we provide personalized education or messaging around that? You know, do we, based on what we know about a consumer, can we give them specific options, right? Can we show them more or less information based on, you know, what we have learned or know about them? But a lot of that time, like you need that information instantly, right? You need to understand what happened before. And so, you know, getting these events, processing them, building that architecture to support that, that's that's one of the most interesting, you know, things we have kind of going on right now. Yeah, it sounds like the the data department, <laughs> for lack of a better term, they seem to interface with the entire organization because that would be I would have to be talking to marketing if I'm going to be changing stuff on the site and like copy and things like that. How how do ideas like bubble up and propagate? Like how, how do they come about? Like let's you say I'll give like you an a, example. Like like you know, yeah. you just rattled off, okay, based off of them coming to the site, we could show them different content, right? 
like there the problem that I have found with uh, the data science and all of that is there's an infinite amount of things you can do. It's like super yeah. hard. So like I guess to form a better question is how do you how do things come up and then uh, or how do you choose what to focus on? That's a a great question because uh, uh, we've seen that challenge too, and is actually you know going back to what we started talking about. One of the things we're looking to address with this transformation is, you know, we've started to, you know, we we still have our data science team as a team, but we've also now, you know, as we've aligned to OKRs and objectives, we've we've embedded data scientists with some of the the product development teams, and they're focused not on initiatives, but on achieving certain objectives and key results, and then. You know, it's it's a, that's where the the team now and, and what they you know they're they're like all the smart people we've hired get to help figure out of what are some ideas and how best might we go solve those those things right like how might we um, how might we hit this target how might we better serve our customers and that's where I think we elevate or, or provide the opportunity for our data scientists to say hey we might be able to do this or you know here's some ideas of you know how we might uh, personalize or, you know, work through that. Whereas it's not that, you know, it, sometimes it can be so distant or separated to your point that it, it's hard to make progress or get that, you know, right at the forefront of product development. What is data mesh? So data mesh, say, uh, one of my favorite topics in, uh, in data right now. Um, and I guess uh, you look at it, the, the, where data has come right? As a modern organization, you've kind of gotten to where you're like, okay, we have all these, these roles, this, like what we understand a lot more about it, but it's been centralized, right? Centralized is great in terms of consistency, standards, knowledge, share, you know, knowledge, et cetera, but it doesn't scale up. And we're facing a similar problem to what engineering faced when, you know, microservices came out and domain-driven design and all this stuff is, you know, we have a monolith in some ways, and how do you scale? And you know, and data mesh is akin to that problem. What you know, microservices and your know, domain-driven design was, which is how do we how do we provide like build the plumbing, build the infrastructure, and the pieces um, that require a lot of data-specific knowledge centrally, but then empower and enable teams that know their domains to own the data for their domains and then piece it together in a mesh, right? And so that's really what this, you know, the, this concept is about. And it, you know, it's pretty new and in, in, in terms of figuring out in practice what works and what doesn't, what are the things we can take from engineering? What, what are the things that don't work the, you know, the same way, but really about how do you scale modern data works? That's pretty neat. I like that. Mitesh mesh. Mesh-tash. Oh, uh, mesh-tash. There you go. Mesh-tash. That's, there we go. That, that's much better. All right. What other topics did we want to get to today? Did you have anything else on your um, mind? No, I mean, I, I think the, the, only, the other one that kind of ties, again, and this is both because of my position as, as CTO and CDO, is like what parallels um, and differences are there between... Um, site like SREs, infrastructure, site like DevOps, site reliability, engineering, and kind of support on the engineering side and data. Because, you know, it, 
if you look at it on you know the engineering side, there's been a lot of progress in terms of things you know uh, on site reliability engineering, like defining SLOs and SLIs, right? And um, uh, monitoring observability, providing you know there's tools around pager duty around like understanding how the health of your services, um, being able to direct that to the right teams to diagnose, you know things uh, around being able to have kind of push button deploys and rollbacks with containers and you know Kubernetes and a lot of this stuff. So there's been a lot of advancement there that has helped solve this issue of something breaks. What broke? How do we know that it broke before the consumer, you know, the customer does? Um, how do we get the right people online? How do you fix it quickly? How do you, you know, how do you diagnose it? Uh, all that kind of stuff. But then you have similar problems in data, but it's not as far advanced in terms of how you handle it, which is to some extent, it's a similar problem, but it's a lot harder to know if your data is broken, right? In some cases, if the data doesn't show up at all, okay, you can say it's broken, right? But what if it's off by a percent? Is that within acceptable thresholds? 2%? What if it's a trend, right? How do you say when the trend is off versus not? Um, what if it's just that, you know, you typically had, you know, only 70% of your data was non-null and now it's 65%. Is that an indicator of a potential problem or not? Right. And so like determining if something is, is right or wrong is a lot harder. Um, and then there's, because we haven't yet gotten to a data mesh or something more distributed, you have this model that's so understanding, like rolling back or figuring out how to address it is harder too. And so there, I guess there's a lot of still open questions in my mind of how do we solve some of the same problems that were solved in engineering, um, but with data, which is a slightly different beast than how much can we borrow and versus how much is just not applicable. That's interesting. I was talking with um, this ANI Solutions and Broadcom. They're like ANI Solutions is like a reseller slash partner implementation person for Broadcom, and Broadcom's just like a giant gorilla, right? But I was talking to someone specifically, and Adam, if you if you remember their name, that'd be great. But I was talking to someone specifically about uh, like reliability, and he had done reliability at some other like like I think it was FedEx. He had done reliability at FedEx um, like way early on. Anyways, what we were talking about was like quality of customer experience. And, you know, they were definitely, uh, or a big part of the conversation was these dashboards that they would build that would watch like key customer experiences, like, you know, going through a checkout process and it would score them. And then based on the score, you could even determine like dollar amounts, like how much this is costing you in failure or identify like opportunities of efficiency rather than just like, you know, digging around a new relic for what should I optimize today? You know, um, I'm assuming because I, I happen, like I know you a little bit that you guys are doing a really good job of that, like internally. Um, have you built custom tools for that, or did you fall in love with some third-party tool? Uh, on the uh, on the engineering side or the data side? On the side, the customer success side, like is are these oh. systems operating? Can someone get from quote to binding? Got it. Yeah, 
Yeah, we, we've um, we've utilized a lot of good tools, right? So we've used Full Story in terms of being able to go view and and understand user experiences and see physically where people, well, I mean, physically where people are getting stuck in the process or, or confused, right? And so that speaks, I think, less to the engineering side, more to the product and UX side of things, right? To understand what part of the journeys are there. But then we do, like, see, this does tie into the, the, um, the data, but we use Datadog, right? We can look at, you know, dashboards and metrics. We have our logs going to there too, to tie that all in to understand the health of our systems and how they're performing. Um, and we've developed some of our own stuff on top of that for alerting and, and you know, like ensuring that we're tracking the SLIs and, and alerting uh, when we, you know, kind of exceeded our error thresholds and things like that um, by using PagerDuty, using Slack and a lot of those other tools. So we've kind of pieced together a lot of the, you know, some of those tools there. And then what we've also done is because we're tracking events and you know, like we're tracking things down to when someone clicked on a button to when they changed a form field, how long it, you know, it takes between them. And we're sending that through our events and looking at it in uh, Looker, which is our, you know, BI tool, we can see shifts in the data, right? And so we haven't yet gotten to where we've not, you know, automated a lot of the anomaly detection. But you can see and say, well, why did this conversion percentage drop? Let's go dig in to it, right? And we can look at the data and then go track it back through to, you know, Datadog and the logs. Or, you know, it used to take X amount of time to go through our funnel. And all of a sudden, after this deploy, it's taking longer. Why? Right? And or this segment of consumers, right? You know, we might talk about we'll get some consumers that come in where we get some, they the where where the consumer is coming in from, they've already provided some information and we want to create a good consumer experience. So we'll try to capture that information and pre-fill it so the consumer doesn't have to provide it again. And we might see something where it's like, oh, from this one you know, source of traffic, our conversion rate dropped. Why is that? Right. And then we'll look in, it's like, oh, this thing was getting timeouts. Right. And so we're not getting all the pre-filled information. And so we've kind of taken all a lot of these tools, some of which are, you know, kind of best in class from modern tools and put together our own solution out of it. That's pretty neat. What do you call the team that sits around and watches that dashboard? Uh, everybody. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the whole company. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, to some extent, we, you know, the the dashboards, uh, you know, is a little bit of everybody. The um We've where we've really matured a lot um, in the last year or so is we no longer on the uh, you know the engineering and like site and SLI and SLO side of things we're not really like watching a lot of those dashboards as much as we're getting alerted automatically. So you've kind of figured out like the key things to track, and then you've set systems up to okay, right, exactly. And so then we've you know we've focused our SRE team on building. The tools and the observability and those alerting, uh, you know, the mechanisms uh, and integrations, so that the the teams that own the services or those areas of the code get alerted automatically, as opposed to someone having to pay attention to it. And so, uh, you know, that's an area I think over the last probably almost two years we've spent a lot of time on and have matured a lot on there. Yeah, you can just tell by you know all the different things you're saying that your company is definitely going from like growth to scale. Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably the biggest thing, right? Which is just back to 
you know, what, what do we need to do to get this to a thousand person company at some point, right? Like what, what do we need to put in place? And at some point watching dashboards becomes, it just doesn't scale the same way, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.